Hey everyone, today's episode deals with mental health, substance abuse, and suicide ideation. Please consider who is around you when you're listening. Patty, mm-hmm. when I see that look on your face, I know that something's up. Yeah. So what's going on? Uh, well, not going to lie. Um, I'm nervous about today's show. Do you want to talk about this? Do I want to talk about this? Yes. Yeah, I do. Okay. Because it's important. We have to talk about it. Where do you want to start? I think I want to start with this poem that my mom sent me. Um, I guess I wrote this when I was around 10 years old, and my teacher sent it home to my mom. It is called Anxiety. Ripping my hair apart like cheap lace. I am red all over my face. I am in fret because I feel like a screeching jet. We will hit the ground and never be found. Eyes bulging, gritting teeth. My face is now green instead of red. And I dread, if I don't get a person to act like a guide, I will commit suicide. But I cannot slash my wrist. I have too many things to live for on my list. All I need is a little rest. And everything will turn out for the best. When I wake, I will talk to mom and dad. And no longer will everything be bad. Ugh. Sorry. You don't need to apologize. Man, I just want to, like, go hug that little kid. Why did you want to start with that? Well, there's two other big things that happen around the same time. When I was around 10 years old, I went up to my mom in the kitchen and I think she was like washing dishes in the sink, maybe. Um, and I asked her, mom, I'm not saying I do this, but do you ever think about suicide? And she like snapped around immediately with this like crazy, astonished and super concerned look on her face. I think I've never seen it before that point. And maybe like a few days later, I was in a therapist's office and a month or so after that, they put me on Zoloft, which is an antidepressant. And then, you know, and then between fifth and sixth grade, I I was just having like a tough go. I experienced my first growth spurt, which was not in height, but in width. And I'm not sure how familiar you are, Elizabeth, with um, small Catholic schools. But when somebody is a little different, everybody's just like super nice and accepting. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, My classmates were not very nice. It was just I was it was rough. It was just really rough. I felt really lonely and I was incredibly anxious and I felt like I was stupid. I was just playing struggling. And this was the first time in my life when suicidal ideation appeared. It's a thing that followed me into my 20s before I went to rehab and got into recovery. But there's a specific memory that really stands out. Like at one point, I went downstairs into the basement of the house that I grew up in. And it's this like classic old school unfinished space down there. Like uneven concrete floors, exposed runners up above you on on the floor above, you know, the ceiling and and exposed pipes. And I walked over to the workbench and I grabbed a bundle of rope and I strung one end up on a pipe and I made a loop and I uh, put it around my neck and I knelt down a few times. I don't think that in that moment that I wanted to kill myself. I wasn't trying to, but what I did want to see was what it would feel like. 
And I never told anyone about that until I went to rehab when I was 29. You know, suicidal ideation didn't show up again until my alcoholism and my drug addiction was like really full tilt. I was living in Telluride at the time and I would wake up after a night out or a super long bender and that monster in my head that does this like really great impression of my voice would just, you know, be like, oh, good morning, Patty. Uh, just remember, you're a worthless piece of shit. Nobody will or could or would ever want to love you. And that, that's how I would go about my day with that voice talking to me. And I would just think about or just I would hope that today would be the day that it just like all that went away. And I would think like, oh, well, maybe I'll just like, I'll drive this, like a work truck off the road or I'll just like ski into a tree or off of a cliff. I'll just like send it into the abyss. And then I would fantasize about the nice things that people would say about me at my funeral and how I would be missed. If that right there isn't an example of some crazy alcoholic drug addict thinking, I don't know what is, you know, it's like, I'm going to feel so depressed that I want to kill myself, but then I'll make myself feel good by fantasizing about it all. I was in complete agony and it was the darkest, lowest point of my life. And even though I knew that I had all these people around me and I had these friends and these family who absolutely loved, loved me, but I felt completely alone, a hundred percent adrift by myself with nowhere to go and no one to turn to. And I didn't tell a single person about what I was thinking or what I was feeling. And I nearly died keeping that secret. And mental health and suicide is something that we don't talk about a whole hell of a lot in our community. In the outdoor community, we typically focus on the rad shit that we do in the mountains, not the hard parts of our personal lives. Mental health and suicide doesn't really fit into that, like, look at my amazing, adventurous life aesthetic, you know? Yeah. But that needs to fucking change, man. Yeah. And that's why I was so excited to chat with my friend Ben Marshall. He's the current recreation coordinator for the town of Telluride, and he's the former behavioral health program coordinator for Tri-County Health Networks. And Ben and I, we first met back in my Telluride days when we were both ski bumming. And I didn't know it at the time, but Ben was going through the similar struggles that I was. And he has a belief about mental health and suicide that makes me want to stand up and scream, hell yeah. I believe you have to kill the stigma to save yourself. How can we help those who feel helpless? How can we destroy the stigma around mental health issues? Today's show may be rough, but maybe that's the point. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them. I moved in 2008, uh-huh. in the fall of 2008. I graduated that summer. That was during the economic 
meltdown of that point. So I was like, sweet, I have this degree that I can't use. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah. it's like, yeah, awesome. Last minute, I just applied to work on the mountain at Telluride just as a lifty. Was at the time where you could get employee housing immediately too. So applied to work at, or excuse me, live at Big Billy's, which was basically graduating college and moving back to the dorms again <laughs> um, in a way. Absolutely. <laughs> Pluses and minuses with that for sure. Hot plates, mini fridges, stinky ski boots, vending machines at Ski Bum College. Yeah. VHS. We were watching Home Alone 2 a lot for sure. <laughs> um, <Yes>. but, uh, <laughs> stealing internet from the people like one person would buy it and everybody would use it on the floor. Absolutely. You know, do whatever you could do to make it work. And I mean, I think I was making eight fifty an hour on the resort or something like that. So not not really raking it in there for sure. Right. Get yeah. your car towed mm-hmm. a couple of times and uh, that was kind of my savings. Right. But really that was a really good snow year. It was something where I had just never lived within something where I could walk out my door and be on a lift or get towed up on a snowmobile and be up there before sunrise and being able to ski with like ski patrol before everything opened at times. And just these parts where people would take care of you in those little external benefits of being able, you know, you're not making money, but you're getting to do something that's absolutely incredible every day and ridiculous. I'm putting wood on my feet and flying down a mountain. And I grew up in Kansas. Like this didn't exist. Ben's move to Telluride was the classic ski bum story. He came for a season, fell in love with the town in the mountains, and just never left. Patty, this basically almost happened to you, right? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, the only reason I left was to go to rehab. So let me paint you a picture of Telluride. Okay. The entire town is a National Historic Landmark. It sits in a canyon in the San Juan Mountains in southwest Colorado. Around 2,500 people call it home. It's eight blocks wide and 12 blocks long, peppered with Victorian homes, old ski shacks, and clapboard storefronts. And it's always at the top of one of those, like, best places to live lists. And it's also on Forbes' most expensive zip codes list. It is one of the most physically stunning places in the West. Probably in all of the Earth, actually. Plus, Outer Space 2. Here is a lot more, I consider almost like a European style, jagged peaks, really austere. I mean, we're surrounded by, I believe, the most 14,000 foot peaks in the state. Mm -hmm. We have some of the most iconic mountains that I've ever been around. And that's both from an outdoor mountaineering, skiing, et cetera, perspective with some of the most iconic lines, but then just some of the most stark beauty. I mean, when you come into an end of a canyon and you're looking at multiple waterfalls, wildlife all over the place, it's honestly the most beautiful place I've ever lived. And you really want to have to be here to get here. And that kind of creates that community and feeling like you're part of something special. There's definitely still an underlying ski culture, rugged culture, weird culture here. It's a beautiful thing. There is that overall welcoming atmosphere of like, you just got here. That's great. Where are you from? Why are you, why'd you come here? Like, what do you want to be doing? And, and I was like, okay, there's something special about this. And then it built from the skiing to the actual community, which really does wrap around itself, you know, for people who need anything, you know, my first encounter with it. I came in at night, couldn't see anything, rolled up to Brown Dog, sat at the bar, didn't know anybody. A guy sat up next to me, bought me a beer, told me, welcome to town. I was like, okay, I already like the impression I'm, I'm getting here. <laughs> you know, I really thought it was the dream. I was like, I have found Valhalla for that, <laughs> for that matter. Like there is nothing better than this. 
Ben started to experience what he calls Telluride's community facilitation. It's when that small town vibe and excitement kind of just envelops you and rockets you into mountain life. You're doing these insane, extreme outdoor activities, and you're hanging out with an insane, extreme group of happy, fun-loving badasses. The dial for everyone and everything is just turned to 11. In Telluride, it's just kind of normal. One of the first times when I met you is when we were doing the lift ops stuff. I remember riding a snowmobile with you. First time I was ever on a snowmobile. And you're like, we both have to stand on this right-hand skid or else we're going to dump this thing into this huge pile of rocks. So and we're going at speed. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, I don't know what we're doing. Ben was living the good life. He had great friends who wanted to cycle and hike in the summers and ski all day, every day in the winter. He worked for the ski resort, in ski shops in town, and did some odd jobs. I get to strap wood to my feet and scream down this mountain. I get to put on a bike and climb up over these peaks and then get my reward section of going downhill fast. And I get to do these things that are absolutely ridiculous. The people come here, pay massive amounts of money to do. And I get to do this every single day if I so choose. And I, I thought that was awesome. What changed for me with that is that I started getting less satisfied with some of those aspects and what I found so important at the beginning. I had an an aspect of like trying to push myself as hard as I could. And there's that one upsmanship, even though it's less extreme here, can still happen. It depends on how that affects you. For me, it was like I'm not doing enough. And that's where it deteriorated a little bit for me with that living the dream. I was putting the pressure to do everything all the time. And if I wasn't doing something, I was even more upset. And then sometimes I would do it and not be having fun because it was an obligation more than joy. Right. You feel like you have to like check the box or something, right? Exactly. It became check marking, being like, all right, how many days am I on my skis? How right. many, yeah. you know, instead of like quality or who I was with, it was like, I need to go out for an hour, even though I don't feel like it. And then I'm going to be worried, stressed out about what I quote unquote again, should be doing with the rest of my day just to check this box. And so I was sucking out the joy of the things that I moved here for and what I am truly passionate about. Patty, this is something I think a lot of us feel on some level, right? Yeah. Like with so much of our lives reflected on social media, I hear a lot about FOMO. Right. Fear of missing out. Yeah. And this pressure that we put on ourselves to have these lives that just maximize the good times. And I've never lived in a ski town, but it sounds like Ben was going through some version of this. But for him, this was all before the Instagram explosion into our lives. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. Like, Mountain towns kind of have this uh, keeping up with the Joneses thing about them. Only instead of like the new car or the fancy vacation, you're measuring yourself against your neighbors by how rad you're getting. I mean, it happened to me. I wanted to fit myself into the super rad mountain man identity. And when I started to feel like my mountain pursuits weren't hitting the fun button anymore, I found what I was looking for in the party scene. But that was merely a symptom of the real issue. And Ben is not an addict or an alcoholic like me, but he did notice a dark side to mountain town living. Everybody's telling me I'm living the dream and I don't feel like it anymore. Right. A lot of behavior becomes acceptable that in other contexts would be red flags. Like what kind of behavior? Substance use, abuse, like how wasted people are getting all the time. You know, what's considered like acceptable day-to-day stuff. Like I thought it was funny and fun at times. It's like I can drink a beer and smoke a joint walking down the street and nobody's going to say anything. Right. It was just like, I'm going to go out and play pool on like a Tuesday and just get blackout drunk. You know, it's just yeah. like, you yeah. know, ski hard, party hard, play hard.
I started noticing just some interesting anxiety-related things. I would have been 24, I believe, maybe 25 at that point. I could barely sit on a chairlift. I was just so like all over the place mentally. Like I would feel like I was having a panic attack, being high up in the air, and what would happen if I fell off the chairlift? And like I was having these circular thoughts, and I was like, I. That's when I kind of realized it. I was like literally this is the thing that has brought me the most joy over the past x amount of years and i can't even do it anymore i had issues like even driving my car i would get so anxious and get panic attacks multiple ones a day but i couldn't tell anybody about this because i didn't think people would understand it right i mean i bottled it up for so long i'm sure it only exacerbated the whole thing i was unwilling to talk about out of fear out of fear that I was going to be seen as weak out of something that I couldn't control, but wasn't a physical symptom that people could see like my broken ankle of like when my brain was just freaking out and I wasn't able to do the things that were bringing me joy around the time I was 26. That's when I was having multiple panic attacks a day. It was bleeding into me not being able to ski or bike or have social interactions. Like I would like isolate myself in my room, not really come out because I like didn't want to have some weird, awkward conversation I thought I was going to have. And these are around some of my best friends. And that's where I really started noticing. I was like, you know, something is wrong here. And it really came to a head when I was skiing and I was getting having problems just catching my breath like over and over. And I was like, man, something doesn't feel right. Like my heart's racing, can't catch my breath, whatever. And so I skied down. I went to the medical center and I was like, something feels weird. I was like, I don't know if this is asthma related or like, you know, my heart's racing, whatever. Um, they actually took me in, hooked me up like to measure my heart rate. And they're like, we think you're just, you know, actually having like, panic related symptoms like your heart rate's fine your physical's fine basically they're like you know this is something you probably need to look into i didn't tell anybody about what i was thinking and like just trying to push through it on my own because i thought i was stronger than that and i think maybe other people do as well or are scared that they're going to be judged because Mm -hmm. of the historical connotation of mental health like i don't want to give words to this because i'm embarrassed about it i'm fearful all people will treat me if they know that i'm seeking therapy or have some mental issue because there's still that connotation of weakness that comes to that like physical injury is one thing it's like man you pushed yourself and broke your ankle it's just like well when i pushed myself and broke my brain you know, or my brain just happens to have a little glitch in it. There's lack of understanding there, or there's a perception individually that people aren't going to understand it. For people with mental health issues, this sense of aloneness can be devastating. Ben was living in Telluride at a point when San Miguel County, where Telluride is, had a suicide rate that was six times higher than the national average. And that, unfortunately, was not an anomaly. The Mountain West accounts for eight of the top 10 states for highest suicide rates in the U.S. The suicide rate in the Rockies is nearly three times the national per capita average. And because of this, the Rocky Mountains have earned the nickname the Suicide Belt. Truckee, California, Aspen, Colorado, and Salt Lake City, Utah, all have suicide rates higher than the national average. Mental health professionals point to substance abuse as a contributing factor. And this claim was backed up by a 2017 Swedish study. It found that ski resort employees had a higher risk of alcohol and drug abuse than the general population. Why? Well, that's the million-dollar question. When Ben was struggling with anxiety and depression in his early 20s in Telluride, he didn't feel like he had any place to turn to, so he self-medicated. And I totally understand that because that's what I did, too all these mental health symptoms I've dealt with over the years come back and it's like, I feel like I need to 
drink again to like mitigate that and feel normal. So I'm going to ski hard and then I'm going to get, you know, party hard, whether that's just drinking drugs, whatever, and ping back and forth because, you know, it can feel great to <laughs> go out, get, get hammered. And then for me, it was like, I'd wake up, feel like crap. I want to do this. So I don't think about what's going on in my brain. It can be so isolating in these small towns. And I was like, there's something has to change here. And something finally did change. That story after the break. I was at the point of losing it around age 27 for sure. And that's what really, like I I reached a low point. I was like, I can't live like this anymore. So that first step was getting to the medical center. And I remember the first time I kind of was started to talk to even my best friends around here about it. And I was like, God, I don't know how this is going to go. Like, are they just going to say that I'm being stupid or like snap out of it? Like that old mentality. This right here, this is the stigma. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, nearly 47 million Americans suffer from mental health issues in a given year. And they say a little less than half of those people receive treatment. A 2014 survey conducted by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration found multiple reasons people didn't reach out for help. Some were logistical or financial, having to do with health insurance or transportation. But many of the reasons people gave were steeped in the stigma. Like, I didn't want others to find out, or I was worried about the effect on my job. Here's the disconnect. If you walked up with a broken arm, everyone around you would be like, Jesus, go to the doctor. And you'd be like, yep, of course, I'm going right now. But if we feel sad for no reason, if we have suicidal ideation, if we can't get out of bed, if the dark clouds roll in and we don't know why, many of us get too nervous or too embarrassed to talk about it. And we think that we can handle it on our own. We see it as a sign of weakness to ask for help. But the three most dangerous words in the English language are, I got this. Ben was fortunate to have friends who didn't respond negatively. They were supportive of his sharing. The next step is that I met both with a psychiatrist and a psychologist just to start talking about these things. Because I was like, I don't even know where to go from here. And I didn't want to start with medication. I wanted to start with any techniques that I could do on my own. And some of that was like either reading books about certain conditions, trying to find certain techniques, and also using like more natural remedies to help get better sleep or to help change my diet or things like that. So then eventually I had to go through the rigmarole of trying like five different medications. And so, you know, that's not for everybody, but for me, it really worked to be able to like mitigate some of these symptoms while still being able to use these other techniques. Ben's work toward positive mental health started in his late 20s and continues today. In 2017, when he was 31 years old, Ben decided he wanted to help others in his community. So he began to work for Tri-County Health Network. It's a nonprofit that focuses on mental health services in Telluride and the surrounding counties. Ben worked his way up from volunteering to behavioral health program coordinator. And part of that job was teaching adult mental health first aid courses. Those were classes specifically designed to educate communities about mental health and kill that same stigma which kept him from reaching out for help for so long. People kind of can come in with what they believe or preconceived notions. And we have like a little opinions quiz that we do and and certain ones of them are like are people who have schizophrenia or psychotic mental illnesses like hallucinations delusions dangerous and a lot of the prevailing attitude can start out as like yeah absolutely and then we break it down like within the class be like actually 
people are more likely to be victims of a crime if they're experiencing a psychotic break. Right. If I was to walk up with a brace on my knee or a sling on my arm, people literally walk up to you and are like, hey, what happened? Are you okay? Or right. like even yeah. on certain physical illnesses, you're diagnosed with cancer. Here's meal drive. Here is a GoFundMe for your treatment. Here's whatever. Here's that wraparound support. Now, when somebody's acting outside of like what is considered the social norm of behavior or in some way that people don't understand, like, why, what do you mean you can't get out of bed? Just F and get out of bed, you know, like take two steps. Like, what are you talking about? Right. There's a retraction from people. People are like, I don't want to deal with this. This is scary. I don't understand it. Or like, you're bringing me down, man. Like, I'm just not going to, I don't want to think about that because it affects me. That's breeds even more isolation. You're like, I already am isolated. I'm feeling like crap. And now people don't want to talk to me about it because it's uncomfortable or I don't understand it. And so I think it is exacerbated here for sure, because you know, you're kind of like cold from the herd at that point, if you're not keeping up or you're not having that mentality that brings it together. And that's not malicious. I don't think anybody's doing that on purpose, but it's, it's just a thing that happens. I think it is exacerbated, especially when there's a lack of support structure or knowledge etc around mental health in these smaller communities this isn't anybody's fault this is a biological thing that has happened and this is how we can kind of move forward to it and really what we what i've noticed is breaking down the stigma of the law is giving people kind of the agency to really take control of these things by building these communication skills on top of the general statistics of like how neurotransmitters work how these mental illnesses work change is never an overnight fix but Ben does feel that the stigma is breaking down. And for him, there's no better example than his own path from the anxiety and depression he was suffering from in his early to late 20s to the positive mental health he has today in his 30s. It's not that I don't deal with these anymore that I'm like, quote unquote, cured. You know, I take medication every day. I, you know, have shitty days for sure. And for no apparent outward reason other than my own brain. But you know, knowing that there are ebbs and flows and that there are ways to to mitigate around it and having these techniques has made everything so much better. The big thing that I experienced with depression and anxiety, sometimes it was just a win to like get out of the house, right. yeah. let alone yeah. trying to like book an appointment to go see this person or like read this book about the thing I don't want to think about, right. you know, because it's affecting my day-to-day life. I mean, I still deal with that. There's definitely shit I have not dealt with because it's just like at times gets overwhelming. You're like, I just want to sit here and like stare at my television or like read a book or like go bike ride because I can like, I can get that singular focus of my brain on something away from the rest of this stuff. Yeah, There's important parts and that's necessary, but you know, that was part of what took me so long is that, you know, I was trying to drag my way through this or it not admit to myself that there was any sort of thing going on and that I could beat this on my own. And that just really wasn't the case. Ben is hopeful that a new light is being shed on mental health in the mountains. He says Telluride government workers and ski resort staff are now trained in mental health first aid. There are mental health support groups sponsored by the Med Center in town, and Ben has seen more open discussions inside the community. I have seen like real transformation in people, which is a pretty beautiful thing. You know, I, I would hope that would be a, a wake up call that we really need to be putting time, money, energy, conversation into mental health services. And, and really, we shouldn't even be having to call them mental health services. It just should right. be health. Right. We somehow isolate like everything attached to your neck above is one thing and then everything else is physical. But we really need to catch up on a lot of that. And 
I would hope that that leads to like, we want to change that perspective. Really, I think what we work on with having open conversations in any community, but especially here is just like, one, you're not alone. Two, people are not going to judge you for that. And three, if they do, like, fuck them. (laughs) Yeah. And it really, it just has to come down to like, it is about me and I need to solve this because I'll be a better, you know, I'll lead a happier life because of it and be more present for other people and myself. Telluride is a positive example of how the stigma of mental illness can be weakened. And there is some evidence to suggest that change is happening in other places around the country, too. In recent years, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America reported that 60% of college-aged adults view seeing a mental health professional as a sign of strength. And 90% understand that mental health issues can put people at risk of suicide. And in 2015, the Associated Press made an addition in its style book to help journalists write about mental illness fairly and accurately. And U.S. News pointed out that screenwriters have made efforts to humanize characters with mental illness in shows like Homeland and films like Silver Linings Playbook. But even with this progress, we all still have a lot of work to do. What can we do to help those who are struggling? You know, just as scary as a conversation could be, just reaching out to somebody, you know, being like, hey, you know, I've noticed X, Y, and Z, whatever it may be. Like, hey, you used to come in to drop in hockey every Tuesday and I haven't seen you in weeks. Like, is everything all right? You know, it might just be taking that little bridge of a conversation and and you might not be the most appropriate person to talk to this person either. But what I've noticed is just even having someone outreach to just know that someone else is thinking about them and cares can be just kind of that first little step. I would recommend for everybody to take some sort of mental health class. These mental health first aid classes are awesome. They're all over the place. They're in every state. And it's just kind of that overview kind of crash course in mental health, communication skills, things of that nature. And it can really breed some stigma reduction, some conversations within the class, things you might not have thought about. And then it really allows people to to reach out to someone who might be struggling. And then also just knowing what local resources there are, like the national hotlines for suicide prevention, local, like we have the Center for Mental Health out here that has crisis lines and knowing what those are in whatever region. And just having those on hand between one to four and one to five adults are going to experience some sort of mental health issue within their lives, maybe not recurring, but it's like this is a common occurrence. And so killing the stigma just is talking openly and honestly about the brain, about mental health, about our lifestyle choices, about our community, because it all wraps around. And so just the more openness we can have about the whole thing is how you kill the stigma. And that's how, (laughs) you know, you save yourself, you create happy and healthier lifestyles for your community members and maybe prevent some stuff from going down the line and saving people a bunch of anguish, you know, and just because it seems overwhelming, it's something that's not visible doesn't mean that that's not possible. So that's a really important thing to focus on is that just because, you know, everything sucks right now and there's so many problems and it is a life or death issue doesn't mean it has to end in death um, every time or that for the rest of my life, I am going to experience panic attacks. Like that's not the mentality anymore or that I'm going to have to be hospitalized, but we really have to have those hard conversations as well. And having those and breaking through that wall will only lead (laughs) to more positivity overall. You've been listening to Safety Third, 
Our guest today was Ben Marshall. And to learn more about the work that he's done with Tri-County Health Networks, please visit tchnetwork.org. And if you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. It's free, it's confidential, and it's available 24 hours a day, every day. If you like today's show, then please spread the word. You know, Safety Third is kind of like a big old hug. It's really hard to pull off on your own. I mean, it's possible, but hugging yourself is kind of weird, pals. So snag your crew and cuddle in a huddle together. Tell your friends and fam about the show. And if you have an idea for a guest, send us an email at hello at safetythirdpodcast.com. You can find us on the old Instagram at safetythird underscore podcast and on the old interwebs at safetythirdpodcast.com. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Alex Park edited this episode. Additional production help from Julia Caulfield from Kodo Radio in Telluride. Music by my big brother, Brendan Nordstrom's Rack O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitzcahal is our creative director. Becca Call is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie, my friends. Until next time, keep it tight. Keep it loose. And remember... Safety third.